Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Uh, we're going to continue our series of signposts on uh, the Bible from uh, beginning to end. Uh, and uh, today we're kind of going to look at uh, Psalms and Proverbs. And I'm going to read Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly host, all you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Well, in our <coughs> excuse me, um, in our previous signpost, we considered how Psalm fifty-one kind of encapsulated the spiritual condition of Israel in the time of the kings. Even Israel's greatest king, David, failed to live righteously, committing the sins of adultery and murder. One of the great things we noted from that psalm was the pervasive nature of sin. And as we read the history of the kings of Israel, we see that truth played out. While some of the kings did right in the eyes of the Lord, uh, the majority did not. In fact, there is a steady decline in their sinful behaviour, so that eventually the whole nation is led astray to idol worship. As you read through the stories of the kings, you increasingly get the sense that it's all going to end badly. And indeed it does, for it ends with judgment and exile. The books of the Psalms and Proverbs were written during that period and has long been, has long been noted that they include the entire range of human experience and emotions. Most religious people at some point in their lives have turned to the Psalms, especially perhaps for strength and encouragement and comfort. There's praise and lament uh, and all kinds of uh, things said in the Psalms. If you ever had any doubts about how honest you could be in, in prayer, then the Psalms provide an answer. 
for to a large extent they are simply the honest outpourings of the hearts of their authors. Well, Psalm 51 is one of many that express a heartfelt plea for mercy in the face of sin. Other psalms are expressions of worship and trust in God. As I said, the whole of human experience is found in the psalms. Psalm 103 is not only a call to worship, but it also encapsulates the themes expressed in the first four chapters of Proverbs as well. It begins with David basically encouraging himself to worship God. It's as though he's become spiritually lethargic. He just needs to give himself a little nudge to stir up his own soul to worship. He's kind of been in the doldrums a bit and he needs that, that wee nudge uh, forward. It's very easy for us to come to worship in a routine sort of way. Worship all too easily becomes a matter of habit rather than a passionate expression of our longing for God. Sometimes we need to nudge our souls to worship, to remember all the benefits of God uh, and bless him and push ourselves out of our kind of spiritual lethargy. To bless the Lord means to say good things about him in a spirit of gratitude, admiration and wonder. It means to tell of his greatness, his majesty and his glory, but to do so in a way that affects us emotionally and spiritually. David does this by reminding himself of all the benefits of knowing God. He reminds himself about the things that his soul cherishes about God. And as he does that, he's led into an ever-expanding attitude of genuine, heartfelt worship. True worship is something that can't be easily contained. By its very nature, it becomes ever more expansive. And if you quickly scan the psalm, you see that David gets to the point where he's not willing to settle just for prodding his own soul to bless the Lord. When he realises the greatness, uh, afresh, the greatness and majesty of God, his own soul will not be satisfied with just his personal worship. He longs for the worship of God to be ever expanding, ever increasing, for even if the whole creation were to worship God, it would still be less worship than he deserves. As one preacher has said, it's not enough for everything in us to bless the Lord. We want everything in the universe to bless the Lord. The joy of worship is expansive. Our joy in blessing God increases as more and more of God's creation joins us in blessing the Lord. This is what the universe was made for. God created us for his glory, Isaiah 43, 7. He chose us for his namesake, Jeremiah 13, 11. He saved us for his everlasting praise, Ephesians 1, 6 to 14. So true worship moves with its expansive impulse from God's initiative to reveal himself to our spiritual perception of his glory and partial response, to our prodding and urging our own souls to bless him, to our calling all creation to join us in that praise. Strangely, it's that recognition of the inadequate nature of our worship that pushes us forward and helps us to strain towards a deeper response from our own souls. It's that recognition that our worship is incomplete and imperfect that encourages us to pursue a deeper experience of God. David doesn't want his personal worship to be superficial or half-hearted, and so he cries out, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless his holy name. Partial obedience and partial worship will not do. 
we need to be prodded to become fully engaged with God. And as noted earlier, it's the deliberate calling to mind the benefits of the Lord that stirs up David's heart out of his spiritual lethargy and into ever-expanding praise. So what are those benefits that help him? Well, in verse 3, we see that God forgives our iniquity and heals our diseases. From the very beginning, the Bible is always clear that the wages of sin is death, that our iniquity or our sins cause us to be estranged from God and from each other. Humans are so corrupted by sin that there is no hope for us. Even a king like David, who is described as a man after God's own heart, even he could not escape the iniquity of his own soul, which led him to commit adultery and murder. If David, a man after God's own heart, can't resist the impulse of evil within him, then what hope do we have? We can only survive because God forgives. The question that plagues the guilty soul is, will he forgive? Fortunately, David is speaking out of personal experience here. He knew that he was guilty of sin and that his only hope was that God would forgive and that God did forgive and does forgive. Our only hope and surely a source of our greatest joy is that God forgives us. And not only that, but he forgives us to the uttermost. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. In verse 4, we see that God redeems us from the pit. The word used for pit here is only used three times in the First Testament and might refer to some kind of moral or physical danger. It can be used to describe corruption and destruction. The Hebrew construction of this phrase also carries a strong sense of separation. The psalmist has been totally separated from the pit and perhaps separated to God. Furthermore, in Jewish mythology, the pit is the place of death. And this fits in with the idea of corruption and destruction. The use of the word redeem suggests that we, are, we were owned or that we belonged to death. Death had a rightful claim of ownership upon us but because of our iniquity and transgressions. But David says that God redeems us from the pit. In other words, God does through the process of transfer, goes through the process of transferring ownership of us from death to life by means of paying the price. You know, every year at Holy Week, um, and, and throughout that week, you explore the church, many churches of different traditions, explore how God did that at the cost of his own son. It's surely a great nudge to our souls to worship when we consider that he has saved us, redeemed us from the pit. We also see that in that verse that God crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Western culture in the latter half of the 20th century has largely been shaped, defined and dominated by pop music. The vast majority of songs that you hear then are all about love, specifically falling in and out and possibly back in love again. It seems that human love is not just a many splendid thing, as the song goes, it's also quite fickle. We almost have an expectation that love will not last and indeed there are so many things in the world competing for our love and affection. Not so with God. His love is steadfast. That means it's unchanging and undiminished. It's not dependent upon our performance or the holy quality of our lives. It is intrinsic to his character for God is described as being love. In other words, God's love for us is not dependent upon us. 
It's dependent upon him. David says that God crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. But what exactly does that mean? A crown is the glory of the king. It's the very symbol of his status and authority as the king. So God's steadfast love and mercy are our glory, the very symbol of our status as those redeemed by God and eternally loved by him. In verse 5, we see that God satisfies us with good. The sense here is of providing for our material needs so that we are refreshed and reinvigorated to live righteously. One of the great problems of life in the 21st century is that we're never satisfied. We always want more and more. When one famous billionaire, when he, I think he was America's first billionaire, uh, was asked how much money would be enough, uh, he said, uh, just one more million. Our culture tells us that we'll never be satisfied unless we have the, the next gadget or the next newest, biggest thing, unless we have more than we have now. We've lost the art of contentment, but it's in God that we find true and real and deep and lasting satisfaction. In verse 6, we see that God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. We live in an unequal world where the poor and the weak and oppressed uh, are oppressed by the rich and the powerful, none of which escapes God's notice. He will deliver justice for those who are oppressed, if not in this world, then in the next. You know, and I, I quite often say, no one gets away with anything. Everyone will have to answer for every word and thought and action. No one gets away with anything. Everyone will stand before the judgment throne of God and give an account and be held accountable for what we have done. In verse 7, we see that God makes his own uh, known his way. Uh, David refers to Moses as God uh, and God's saving acts or, for Israel. I think what this means is that God's people are not left to wander aimlessly through life. God is a God who is intimately involved in the lives of his people. And so he gives guidance and direction for life, just as he guided and directed the people of Israel long ago in the Exodus. He shows us how we should live, just as he showed Moses how and where to lead the people. We not only have the benefit of both the Bible and the fellowship of believers, but we also have the benefit of the life of Jesus, which as his disciples, we are meant to imitate as his life is incarnated in us. But let me give you a word of caution. The benefits that David speaks of and appear to come with conditions attached. All the benefits that he speaks of are couched in the language of the covenant. And actually, three times David says that these benefits are for those who fear God. And in verse 18, he explicitly says that they are for those who keep the covenant and remember to do the commandments. The point is simply that true worship is expressed in obedience. And it is from obedience that these blessings flow. We tend to think of Worship is something that we do in a church service, particularly the singing. But God makes it clear in his word that the worship he requires is expressed in the actions of our everyday actions in our everyday lives, what we say and do. When the prophet Micah asks how we should approach God in worship, God replies that he has shown us what is good and what he requires. And that is to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus pictures the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. And the only difference between them is not so much their professed belief or unbelief. It's not the kind of doctrines that they uh, adhere to and agree with. Rather, it's their actions in feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoners, and so on, or not. That's the difference. The warning of Psalm 103 is that the benefits of knowing God come at a price, and the price is obedience. Now, the recollection of these benefits calls to mind for David the very character of God. Far from the miserable, mean, angry God of Christian fundamentalism, David knows that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David knows that although we are sinners, God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve because he's compassionate towards us, just as a father is compassionate towards his children. And furthermore, because God is sovereign, because he has established his throne in the heavens, it means that his steadfast, compassionate love and mercy are eternal and unchanging, just as he is eternal and unchanging. Now, if reminding ourselves of those benefits doesn't stir our hearts to overflowing, ever-expanding worship, then I have no idea what will. So whatever is happening in your life today, whatever, whatever you're doing, whatever's going on, stop, take time out to even read Psalm 103 and just reflect on all the benefits of knowing God and living a life of faithful obedience to him. Uh, and you will uh, be just, I'm sure, whatever you, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however you're feeling, that you will just be lifted and encouraged and you'll find yourself uh, worshipping God with a joyful passion that perhaps uh, might uh, be escaping you at the moment. Thanks for listening.